4: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio.
5: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two cherry, cherry, (laughs) zzz of Jermaine Minutia. I'm Alex Heigl. Simple but effective. And I'm Jordan (laughs) Runtog. And as you may have guessed, we are here today to talk about one of the lodestars of daytime television. Nay, television period throughout the 90s. Uh, The Jerry Springer Show. Springer died in April, and so we thought it'd be fitting uh, to examine his show and the legacy and or crater it left (laughs) on the face of both mainstream television and American culture. Period. Jordan. Final thoughts?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think whether or not we want to admit it to ourselves, we were all Jerry Springer fans. Uh, It's a show that appealed to our base level instincts. It's the same part of us that can't resist rubbernecking at a car accident. You know, Mm. the the phrase train wreck television seems a little too easy, but the Jerry Springer show made no bones about what it was. It was basically a sanctioned hour where everyone could come together and say, look at the weird people. (laughs) And then, of course, after all the chairs have been thrown and all the animals have been defiled, you have Jerry come back at the end with a televisual sermon to basically wrap everything up. His final thoughts. Who could ever forget? Take care of yourselves and each other. Yeah. It's... Yeah.
5: Were you... I wasn't, like, banned from watching this show, but it was definitely, like... My parents would have been like, what are you doing?
4: Yeah, no, like, I knew do it was be- wrong. Do, I mean, I... Do, do better. Right. I mean... It reminds me of that sketch from David Mitchell and Robert Webb, the Mitchell and Webb look. Uh, I missed this I completely unmiss this reference But I'm happy to hear you explain it Okay, yeah, it's one of my favorite British sketch shows And they do a fake preview for a very special TV special Called The Boy with an Arse for a Face And it features a pre-Oscars Olivia Colman But the voiceovers say Continuing the Sensitive Freak Show series We'll be telling the uplifting story Of one boy's extraordinary
5: bravery As if that's what you're interested in Rather than the fact that he's got an arse for a face Follow the trials and tribulations of one 12-year-old's struggle to lead a normal life, while also getting to have a good old stare at the freak in a way you can tell yourself is sort of OK. That's The Boy With An ass For A Face, a story of love and triumph but with loads of juicy pictures of a boy with an ass for a face this Sunday on Five.
4: Jerry Springer sort of has that whole feel to it. It's trying to position itself sort of in, a, yeah. in, in some kind of sanctimonious way. And it's really, there's nothing redeeming about it, which obviously made it uncomfortable viewing <laughs> back then in the 90s and early 2000s and troubling to discuss now. But, you know, when it's 1998 and you're homesick sick from school and The Price is Right is over... What else are you gonna watch?
5: yeah, I mean, I don't know, dude I this was fascinating researching this very much so yeah I don't think I like him <laughs> like I really think he's in many ways the ultimate boomer and I, oh yeah I can't I can't no I can't say that because they always get really red ass and leave mean comments uh, on on iTunes but like talk about a guy who sold out his ideals for like a paycheck.
4: Yeah, started out uh, working on Bobby Kennedy's campaign and and wound up having talking to horse f***ers. Yes, (laughs) thank yeah. There you go. It's really to put too fine a point on it, but yeah, yeah. Sunrise,
5: sunset. I think that's actually what American Pie is about.
4: I did. This is one of the most fascinating ones we've ever researched. I'm extremely excited to get into it.
5: Well, from the horrifying circumstances of Springer's birth to his time in politics before he ascended to the real seat of American power, daytime television, to the controversies surrounding his show and the only chance you might have ever had to see Harvey Keitel play Jerry Springer. Here's everything you didn't know about the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> Gerald Norman Springer was born a day before Valentine's Day in 1944 in the literal actual London Underground Station of Highgate while it was being used as a shelter during the German bombing blitz of London in World War
4: II. This just makes so, so much sense. His psychotic bent towards drama coupled with his ability to remain eerily placid throughout it all. Of course, he was born (laughs) during the middle of a literal bombing raid. And because I can bring anything back to the Beatles, according to legend, Uh John Lennon was also born during a bombing raid during the Blitz, but there's a good chance that that was just a myth, but, uh, and with this in mind, what do we think about this actually just being a myth on Jerry's part too, and the beginning of him being completely full of crap?
5: I don't think he's full of crap. I don't don't think he lied about very much, except for, you know, we'll get into the thing that he did lie about, but, um... I don't know, maybe this seems reasonably true. I mean, his Hmm. parents were, his family were German Jews who fled from the Nazis. Some of his family was from Poland. We know at least his, uh, both grandmothers died in Hmm. the concentration camps in Poland and Czechoslovakia. Uh, A great uncle did as well. I've heard him say in other interviews that 27 members of his family were killed by the Nazis. And they were staying in, allegedly, in East Finchley, um, That's a Monty Python just, location. Yeah, exactly. They got there a month before the war broke out. Great timing. They were staying in a place that was designed for Jewish war refugees. You know, so I don't know. It tracks. I don't think he would. I don't know. Don't don't call this. Don't start calling bullshit on stuff now. We'll never get through this episode. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as he explained to the BBC in 2012, during the war, women who were in the ninth month would often spend the night in subway stations because those were the bomb shelters. Uh, After the war, they moved to a block of East Finchley called Belvedere Court, designed, funnily enough, by architect Ernst Freud, the son of psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. So there's another. Yo, whoa, yeah. Another another brick in the Springer wall.
4: Don't we talk about another of uh, Freud's ancestors on here, like his nephew or something? Maybe he was a painter. You know what? He's a painter.
5: (laughs) I don't have that in the Rolodex. Lucian Freud, I think his name is. Oh, was it the uh, Bob Ross thing? Maybe. Interesting. Well, Springer added to the BBC that some of his earliest memories of growing up in London were looking out of the window of their flat and watching the buses that passed by, the 58 and the 102. Uh, And then they immigrated to the States in 1949 on the RMS Queen Mary. And uh, Jerry has spoken very movingly of his mom going up on, uh, taking him up to the top deck of the ship and looking at the um, Statue of Liberty. And uh, he said, in silence... All the ship's passengers gathered on the top deck of this grand ocean liner as we passed by the Statue of Liberty. My mom told me in later years that while we were shivering in the cold, I had asked her, "What are we looking at? What does the statue mean?" In German, she replied, "Ein Tag
4: alles." One day, everything. Ein Tag alles. Have we talked about it as a sketch on the Dana Carvey show with um A German saying polite things. German saying nice things, yeah. Yeah. It was a pleasure babysitting Kevin. Yeah. Uh, This is so weird. I mean, we can't mention large ships of the early 20th century without me going off on a tangent. I'm sorry. Uh, But the Queen Mary, (laughs) uh, this is very interesting to me because my daytime TV sick viewing in the 90s, aside from Jerry Springer and The Price is Right, was Unsolved Mysteries. And they did a whole episode on the Queen Mary because it is apparently remarkably haunted. I remember there was this one story that is just seared into my brain on Unsolved Mysteries about there was somebody alone in the indoor pool and then they're there by themselves, and then they hear this big splash in the pool. And they hear, like, the sound of, of a child, like, laughing and giggling. All right, children, ghost children, are scarier than regular ghosts. Like, you know, I, that's how I feel it anyway. And so they hear this child, and they see this, like, splashing in the water, and, but there's nobody there. And then they see these little wet footprints emerge from the pool with nobody above them, which is horrifying. Yeah, it's pretty... I wish you hadn't said that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Apparently a child had drowned in that pool years earlier. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So immediately after seeing this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, I became obsessed with the Queen Mary, which is now Mm. permanently docked in Long Beach, California. That was the ship that they used for the Poseidon Adventure as a location. And so I insisted we go to see the Queen Mary and because you know it's a hotel and it scared the hell out of me apparently something like 55 people died on board And those are just the ones that were, like, officially noted. There are probably more. In fact, there's probably likely more, because there's been over 150 reports of ghostly appearances and paranormal activity. Uh, Sometimes it's relatively benign, like the smell of cigars and perfume or the creaking of doors or knocks or sudden squeals or laughter or the sounds of people talking in an empty room. Sometimes they're a little more intense. One of the most common apparitions is a bearded crewman in blue coveralls who's supposedly the ghost of a fireman who was killed by getting crushed underneath a watertight door during a fire drill. There's also supposedly a woman in white who roams the ship. Uh, pick your poison. It's all terrifying. And now the fact that this hotel is closed indefinitely while they're trying to sort out their financial situation, I think the Queen Mary Hotel went bankrupt. It's just a literal ghost ship abandoned and empty off the coast of Los Angeles. Wow. You're not too far from there. You should check it out. <laughs> you had me a drowning
5: child. <laughs> the springers settled oh, back in back to jerry back
4: to jerry i'm sorry
5: <laughs> the springers settled in queens where his parents uh his mom worked in a bank and his uh, dad worked as a street vendor of toys encouraged their kids to assimilate to american culture by joining activities like baseball and boy scouts jerry's mom bought him a yogi berra yankees jersey which changed his fortunes at school
4: and uh, jump-started his lifelong affection for the team. Apparently, in his early broadcast career, he spoke with a really thick Queens accent that got him—I'll say—affectionately mocked by his colleagues.
5: Yeah, I mean, he. Someone talked about him coming to Cleveland with a Boston, like a affected Boston accent, but also like Queens and the South because he went to uh, you know New Orleans. So he must have had just a deeply bizarre, Real hard. Eh. yeah, exactly. So his folks also pushed Jerry and his older sister, Evelyn, to stay informed about current events. Springer remembers being fascinated by the civil rights movement and watching the 1956 Democratic National Convention on television. Uh, He was impressed by then Senator John F. Kennedy. Springer graduated from Forest Hills High School, uh, home of the Rones in 1961, which means that he was there at the same time as both Simon and Garfunkel, which I, I think is funny. I like to imagine them bullying paul simon i like to imagine he shoved paul simon into a locker then he headed to new orleans to attend tulane where he majored in political science and then to northwestern university in evanston illinois where he earned his juris doctor in 1968 springer began clerking for a law firm while at school and having met bobby kennedy at a dinner party the year before he signed on for kennedy's presidential campaign in 1968 basically just in time for kennedy to be assassinated. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was in politics for all the right reasons, Springer told Cincinnati's WVXU in 2018, especially in the final years of his life. He cared about people who were struggling, who were discriminated against, who had no chance to succeed. Why else be in politics unless you want to make life better for people who have nothing?
4: I mean, this is like some Forrest Gump zealig action going on i can't believe the number of historical moments that he was directly involved in or affected by from bobby kennedy to the blitz to yeah one of the last like immigration stories of being on the boat and looking at statue of liberty to to simon and garfunkel like yeah this is really nuts and there's more and uh
5: yeah galvanized by kennedy's murder springer joined the anti-war movement Again, just in the nick of time to be at the infamous Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, which turned into a landmark moment of police
4: brutality. I have a lot to say about this because I wouldn't be surprised if this more than any other single event in Jerry Springer's life directly led to the creation of the Jerry Springer show as we know it. The police beatings in the streets of Chicago were filmed by news crews from essentially every network and beamed into American living rooms, a fact that was not lost on these protesters who chanted the whole world is watching while being pummeled by police nightsticks. Meanwhile, inside the convention, the Democratic Party was openly feuding with one another as the nomination was split, just basically due to the power vacuum left by Bobby Kennedy after his death. So you had unprecedented hostility towards politicians of the same party. You've got Senator Abe Ribicoff of Connecticut openly accusing Chicago Mayor Dick Daly of quote, Gestapo-style tactics in the streets of Chicago to which Mayor Daly retaliated by climbing on stage and hurling anti-Semitic slurs at this guy. And this was broadcast. And then even on network news, you had commentators Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley who were posed as like having a debate show, openly fighting with one another, dropping homophobic slurs and calling each other crypto fascist or crypto Nazis, something fascist or Nazi was said. My yeah, point- you
5: call me a crypto fascist one more time and I'm going to knock your block off. Yes, what, or exactly. Something
4: like, or sock you in the mouth is something what Buckley said. My point being, the floor of the 1968 DNC looked an awful lot like an episode of the Jerry Springer show. So seeing this chaos firsthand in the street and in the Democratic National Convention and the resulting headlines and furor that resulted as it was broadcast in American homes, I have to imagine this had a major impact on young Jerry Springer. I'm sure he must have filed that away.
5: (laughs) It didn't matter. (laughs) Whatever whatever lessons this left him were not strong enough to re- embrace the lore of the horse f <laughs> If you are a child of Holocaust survivors, it's hard not to be a liberal, Springer told WVXU. 27 members of my family were wiped out. You learn that you never judge people on what they are but what they do. The following year, Springer uh, he's been to ev- I just read he's been to every single Democratic convention since 1968. That scans. That's incredible. M- imagine the Democratic National Convention being like your Lollapalooza. Like, oh, I go every year. Yeah, just reconnect with the same old people. Yeah. Talk about the good times. Uh, yeah, uh, 1969, he landed in Cincinnati with the Frost and Jacobs law firm and embarked on a campaign to change the voting age in Ohio from 21 to 18. Which was set him on a path that eventually led him to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee in favor of ratifying the 26th Amendment, which dropped the voting age to 18 across the
4: entire country. I have I have something to say. Go on. <laughs> Is it about a big boat? No, it's about Mr. Rogers. Close. <laughs> I I just the similarities I'm starting to notice between Jerry Springer and Mr. Rogers are kind of strange how they both kind of like sermonized during their shows, albeit in very different ways. You've got Jerry with his final thoughts and Mr. Rogers with the totality of his show, but they both had their start in like completely different arenas. Fred Rogers in the seminary and Jerry Springer in politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they both testified before government house authorities to forward their causes. Mr. Rogers to try to get PBS off the ground and Jerry Springer to try to expand the voting age. It's, it kind of falls apart after that, but with the whole horse copulation thing. But I don't, I don't think Jerry Springer was like a good person th- though. Like I, I, I
5: at least not in the years that, like, uh, quit your f-ing show, dude. Like if you really want to like be such a, if you really want to go back to politics that bad. I mean, there is something poetic about it. Like whether or not he like truly felt so trapped that he n- never had any opportunity. Or if you just liked the easy paycheck, like that's, and I don't think, I don't think either of those readings are especially charitable, but also like, yeah, dude, quit your job. Like if your job, if you feel that conflicted and like really want to help people and be like a good liberal or whatever, like quit your job or I don't know, donate a lot more money. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, uh, we're, I'm putting the
4: cart ahead of the horse, you well, know, we'll, we'll. we'll This is when you can start comparing him to uh, either Ben Affleck or Billy Joel in that he's somebody who... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, making connections here. Aspires to something higher, but he's stuck, he's trapped in this middle brow, low brow, Mm. let's be honest with ourselves, realm. And he's just sort of like resigned himself to it. And he talks about... I mean, he did have an interesting justification for it. I think we get to it later in the episode, but he said, you know, my show gives voice to americans that really don't get much exposure i mean again he's a politician at heart so i'm sure he's great at justifying whatever the hell he wants but that's an interesting i mean it's a cheap defense because it's one where you can't really respond to it but <laughs> uh yeah i mean i don't know
5: i don't want to get into this mudslinging but k- kind of him anyway Getting a, get a cart cart horse cart horse Um, In 1970, Springer ran for the U.S. House of Representatives. And despite being such a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, he got 45% of the vote against his Republican incumbent opponent. So that's a difficult thing to pull off, especially in Ohio. Uh, Three days after announcing his candidacy as an Army Reservist, he was called to active duty and sent off to Fort Knox and then just picked up his campaign after he was discharged. Getting
4: sent into the Army Reserves days after racking up that kind of Oh, he lost. Never mind. I was gonna say that that almost seems like some kind of Nixonian dirty trick thing where they like, All right, this guy got a little too close to winning, uh uh, call him up, like yeah, I know. Right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, also, it's interesting. In 1970, in Ohio, is when the massacre at Kent State happened. So I wonder if there was just so much dissatisfaction with people perceived as right wing that that would be a w- why a young Democrat might have performed so well against a Republican incumbent because that would have been what November 1970, and Kent State was May of 1970. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they called him like the boy wonder of of
5: Ohio politics. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, he 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 then successfully ran for Cincinnati uh, City Council in 1971 when he was just 27. And his wow. first action, yeah, his first action was to propose a ban on drafting Cincinnati residents into the, into Vietnam. Can mayors, like, do that? Like, just violate a federal draft? I don't think so. Draft? I think it might have, yeah, I think a it might have been, uh, been a stunt, but,
4: uh, you know, whatever. Let him, you know, good for him. Are you lying down on the bed with your feet up, like the telephone hour scene in Bye Bye Birdie? I am. Oh. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I don't have very many other good places to tape here, so this is this is what we're doing. It'll really be hurting my neck by oh. hour three when you bring up another large boat. <laughs> um, young Jerry was, as Cleveland consultant Patricia Gary told This American Life, quote, absolutely the most gifted natural politician I ever saw. Mike Ford, who is a Democratic political strategist at the national level, who worked on the Howard Dean's campaign, which, you know, uh -uh, but can't blame Mike Ford for that. Uh, He met Springer back in the 70s, and he also told This American Life, I worked with Clinton in 90 and 92, Dukakis in 88, 1980, I worked for Kennedy, 76, Jimmy Carter. Jerry Springer was the best I've ever seen, bar none. One major triumph, one coup that Springer pulled off that was uh, recollected in the uh, This American Life episode was he basically forced uh, a confrontation with another guy on city council and that should have been like a routine procedural vote to get public funds allocated for what would have been what was the Riverfront Arena in Cincinnati. And um, Jerry didn't think it was right to have public funds pay for it but he successfully turned the tide of public opinion against the position and against his opponent on city council. And in fact, the Riverfront Arena was constructed with very few public funds, which is so fascinating. I mean, yeah, that's I agree with him on that. Uh, around this time, he married a woman named Mickey Velton who worked for the local megacorp, Procter & Gamble. But his career and his marriage were both derailed in 1974 when police raided a Northern Kentucky brothel that was disguised as a health club and uncovered in its records a personal check from oh. Gerald Springer to a prostitute, massage therapist, whatever, for services rendered. It's a rookie. Move. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's such a punchline. I think so many people were... were Most of the crux of the scandal was not that it was uh, bad for him to have visited a sex worker, but to have paid for it with a personal check. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Springer confessed to, uh, his infidelity and, uh, took, you know, was very contrite about this in a big televised press conference. And then he resigned.
4: This is just so fascinating to me because literally all of the pieces of Jerry Springer, as we know him and love him are coming together from televised chaos to elaborate extramarital gotchas to (laughs) cheerful pleading on television. I just, I can't get over this.
5: Yeah, and this conference, people still talk about this as a watershed moment because he was at a low point, and he later said of it on a newscast that he was doing, to be honest, the thought about ending it all crossed my mind. But a more reasonable alternative seemed to be, hey, how about just leaving town, running away, starting life over someplace else? But uh, this conference that he had, he was so well-loved in the area, And this moment of candor and vulnerability and whatever was so well received that he was elected back to city council. And then the city council named him as mayor for a term for one year. Uh, And he received the most votes for mayor of anyone in Cincinnati history at that point. He won by the biggest margin. Jerry Springer, Cincinnati mayor, biggest margin in, in the town's history at that point. One of his comeback speeches nodded to the prostitution controversy. Uh, The Cincinnati Enquirer had dragged up one that said, uh, A lot of you don't know anything about me, but I'll tell you one thing you do know. My credit is good. (laughs) Uh, Hamilton County Democratic Chairman Tim Burke, who is uh, at the time Springer's legislative aide, has a a fascinating anecdote about how well this comeback went. He said some of the nuns out at the College of Mount St. Joseph Started a thing where they were sending stones and little pebbles to the other members of Cincinnati City Council to encourage them to reject Springer's resignation, with the message that he who is without sin should cast the first stone. This will be the last time that Nuns would come to the defense of Cherry Springer. I'll do it. I'll 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 cast the first stone. I don't give a shit. love casting stones. You got any stones to cast right now? Who can I cast a stone at? <laughs> I can cast you a I can get you a stone, dude. Uh, Burke also remembered Springer's flair for the dramatic as a politician in- to Cincinnati.com. He once wrestled a bear for charity, uh, spent a night in jail known as the Workhouse in Camp Washington to learn about the plight of the prisoners there, and stole, quote, a bus and drove it around the block uh, at a press conference to commemorate the city taking over bus service.
4: Politicians spending a night in jail, such an old, tired, 70s grandstanding trick. That's like so many of them did that.
5: My favorite one is in Chicago when the mayor moved into Cabrini Green and was like, it's safe, and then lasted like two weeks.
4: I didn't know that. Was it Dick
5: Daly? Uh, no. What, uh, Caprini. Yeah, Mayor Jane Byrne. Wow. Three weeks. Uh, I'm sorry. So she She lasted three weeks and then dipped out. Um, though it was often reported that Springer and his wife, Mickey Velton, separated and eventually divorced in 1994, a rep was correcting this when he died earlier this year, saying that the divorce had never gone through and they were still married. The couple had a daughter, Katie, in 1976, Uh, She was born without nasal passages. Interesting medical complication. She underwent immediate surgery after her birth, and uh, she's I believe legally blind and deaf in one ear. Uh, And then in 2006, Springer donated $230,000 to the Park School in Chicago where she works as an assistant teacher, uh, and they constructed a high-tech facility called Katie's Corner for students with disabilities. So that's nice uh springer served just a year as mayor due to an arrangement with a local third party group at the time that limited the amount of years he could serve um during his time in office he had a regular commentary slot. i have no idea what that means don't ask me to elaborate during his time in office he had a regular commentary slot on local rock station webn called the springer memorandum which uh you're starting to see the groundwork of his latter day career shift here And by 1982, he decided to run for governor of Ohio, but his opponents dredged up the prostitution scandal. And despite continuing to address it in his own campaign ads with the candor that proved so successful before, he finished third for the Democratic nomination, uh, putting his political career in the review.
4: After his political fortune sank, Jerry Springer moved to TV. He was still popular enough to draw an audience, and he joined the NBC affiliate WLWT. And he turned out to be a natural. As anchorman and managing editor for the station's nightly news broadcast, the station ascended to the top slot in the market. His reports ended with a nightly commentary, sort of akin to his future show's final thought, and that's where he coined his famous sign-off, take care of yourselves and each other. And the show performed great in the ratings and eventually earned him a total of seven local Emmys. The
5: last, it's so funny, the last he would ever come within sniffing distance of an Emmy.
4: I'm almost surprised that he didn't win an Emmy for something weird on, like, Jerry Springer show later. I don't know what.
5: I think he they started opening the show with, like, zero Emmys, <laughs> zero respect,
1: or something like that.
4: He later said of his time as a newsman, I wasn't even thinking about anchoring at the time. I was just thinking, well, I'll get to do commentary. And then all of a sudden, it kind of got a life of its own, and I enjoyed it. I always made an excuse not to run for office again because I enjoyed it. And he was sort of known for his stunts. As I mean, he was known for pulling stunts in office, like we just said, spending the night in jail and wrestling a bear and stealing a bus. And he performed similar stunts. Well, slightly less illegal stunts on WLWT. Uh, he performed <laughs> on stage in 1985 in Broadway's Damn Yankees. He joined the Cincinnati Reds baseball training camp for a report in 1988. And he covered various games in which Cincinnati teams figured, including the 1989 Super Bowl in Miami. And capitalizing on Jerry Springer's popularity as an anchor and commentator, in 1990, he attempted his own public affairs show on the network WLWT. And in 1999, Multimedia Entertainment bought the show for broadcast in its four television networks. And for many in the Midwest news world, it seemed like multimedia entertainment was trying to position Jerry as the heir apparent to the jewel of their Midwest talk show stable, Phil Donahue. Did you ever watch <laughs> Phil Donahue much? He wasn't really available no. where I was. Yeah. No, yeah. It was a little before our time and I don't think really aired where I was. Uh, multimedia, this company launched Donahue in 1970 and continued to expand its lineup. They're the folks behind the Sally Jesse Raphael show in 1983 out of St. Louis and also Jerry Springer's in 1991, which I believe premiered in Cincinnati. NBC then purchased Jerry's show for its owned and operated stations, and the next year, Springer moved production to NBC's Tower in Chicago.
5: It's funny. He's such a Midwest guy. I don't know why. It's just, it's so bizarre. He was born in London and lived in New York City. I oh, know. Uh, from the For the first few years his eponymous show was on, Springer did serious Donahue-like stuff. I mean, he interviewed... Uh, disgraced Iran-Contra ghoul Ollie North, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. He discussed issues like homelessness, the AIDS crisis, domestic violence, race and equality. He also did feature other less or perhaps more distinguished guest stars from time to time like Shock Punk, Gigi Allen and Guar, Pride of Richmond, Virginia. Guar baby. Uh, Even after his show moved to Chicago for its second season, Springer continued to commute home nightly to anchor his old evening news slot with his longtime co-anchor Norma Rashid, though after their ratings fell from first to third, he quit Channel 5 in 1993 to do full-time daytime TV, which, yeah, you sure love news until you weren't winning at it anymore,
4: and then you went to the other thing. That's like a five-hour drive between Chicago and Cincinnati. Damn, I I guess he flew, but flying every night? Ugh. Uh...
5: The move may have been a mistake because by April of 1994, the ratings for his show were so bad that multimedia threatened to cancel him if ratings didn't improve by that November. uh, And that led to a major overhaul of the creative team. The original executive producer, Terry Weibel Murphy, was replaced by Richard Dominic.
4: Yeah, this creative overhaul, I imagine, involved catering to the lowest of the lowest common denominators.
5: Hey, Richard Dominic is an interesting guy. Uh, he began his career in theater and comedy, uh, and then moved on to the tabloids. He wrote for the very famous Weekly World News. Uh, some of his biggest hits were things like "Howdy Doody Dummy Comes Alive and Saves Drowning Man," <laughs> and he is currently. Uh, you can see his uh, an interview about a toaster possessed by the devil on YouTube, if you so choose. Uh, He wasn't a stranger to television either. His tabloid work earned him a number of appearances on Dave Letterman's show by the time he went to Springer. Dominic recalled to A&E that the first responsible iteration of Springer's show never really took off. It never was exciting. I hate to say it was dull, but it probably was. The LA Times sniffed in a contemporaneous review that Springer's first show was oppressively self-important and starring a Cincinnati News anchorman and former mayor. Talk about coastal elitism. So, Jerry and I took a walk around Chicago, Dominic told the Seattle Times in 1998. We said, hey, let's be outrageous. And at the time, I said to producers, don't bring it to me if it's not interesting with the sound off. That's your approach to porn, isn't it? (laughs) He added to A&E years later, we decided we were going to go after what I like to call the letterman crowd because there was nobody doing a show for college kids. But... A much more telling quote uh, he gave to the BBC when he was asked to defend Springer. If I could kill someone on television, I would. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
5: so by december of 1994 the tide had begun to turn the show was featuring topics like my boyfriend turned out to be a girl and i want my man to stop watching porn as well as a show that investigated the relative merits of large versus small breasts A 1995 episode featured a young man named Raymond whose Springer was helping to lose his virginity. Uh, Springer offered him, I I guess I put that in quotes. I should put that in quotes. I don't know, it's horrifying. Uh, Offered him five young women hidden by a screen that he could choose from. Uh, Raymond had a friend named Woody with him and an on-screen graphic then told viewers, Woody doesn't know it, but his 18-year-old virgin
4: sister is one of the contestants. No! way this is free no way i know that's not like the first reaction i should have to what you just said but, <laughs> <Yeah. like. laughs>
5: well springer put the most responsible spin on this change that he could or my personal theory is that he just had nuclear grade justification <laughs> powers <laughs> he wrote in his 1998 biography ringmaster it was time to listen to the public to show another side of life rarely if ever seen on television." Uh, As he put it at the end of a 2015 episode, his show focused on regular folks of no fame, little if any wealth, and very little influence. Folks just taking a moment, which they rarely, if ever, get, to let the world know something about what they are thinking or feeling or doing. (laughs) What a world-class bull****** artist. I'm
4: sorry well, what do you expect? It's Jerry Springer. And I didn't even know, before we started this, I didn't even know he had a background in politics. Of course. I mean, that's the, that's
5: the thing that bothers me is like, I, I don't just don't think he was that bothered by, I mean, you know, he's a complex, people are complex. People can feel two things that he, uh, but, but like all this justification and then having the horse and, and then like all the that he had on there and like the, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't sixty minutes. It wasn't Charlie Rose. Like the show was mean, and like, and as much as he would like furrow his brow and and you know do some uh, introduction to creative nonfiction, pandering at the end of episode with his little monologues, like the show was mean and it was not responsible. And if I read a lot of interviews with him for this, and he just had the say, he he's like, oh, it's chewing gum and yeah. i just don't know that people really ever pushed him in being were like shut the f*** up what's wrong with you i right, whatever 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 doesn't matter what well,
4: matters in my position as the resident optimist on the show there was at least <laughs> a somewhat laudable aspect to a very small portion of this many of springers lgbtq guests were actually the very first exposure that mainstream americans had to queer culture for example, in 1995, there were two performances by Comedy Central transgender star Jade Esteban Estrada. And in 2014, after finding out the trans community was upset by Jerry's use of the slur, of a slur, I'm not going to say it, of a slur that he used on the show, he struck it from the broadcast, telling TMZ, I didn't know it was offensive to them, and I'm not interested in offending people, so obviously I'll just change the term. There's no argument there.
0: Yeah, I
5: mean, It's nice. I guess some someone also tweeted when he died that they as a project like as a some kind of I don't know why you'd embark on this project but they were attempting to catalog all of the homophobic language that appeared on the shows like Chirons the scrolling text and graphics and introductions and they gave up because it was just too much for them that's what I mean like I, I yeah I, he, oh yeah no, you I mean. know he has this justification where he's talking like he's you know Walter Cronkite which <laughs> he probably saw saw himself as in some horrifying real self-delusion, but it was just like that show, it was, it was, it was nasty. Yeah. Uh, you know, the slide towards the new moral lows and new rating size, though, was a fast one. Uh, episodes like Kung Fu Hillbilly and I'm Happy I Cut Off My Legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so f***ed because that's like a legitimate medical condition and this woman like went to a bunch of doctors and was like please amputate my legs and they were like no and she did it herself <laughs> like what one 1995 episode saw Springer get into a fraught moment with an outwardly and virulently anti-semitic priest telling him I don't hate you I feel sorry for you then the priest got into a holocaust denial rant springer told him to shut your face and the guy jumped out of his chair it was the most springer ever got involved uh, in, in in any of the uh in any of the shows he reflected on the challenges of filming that episode to people magazine in 2019 he said i'm supposed to be able to handle all the outrageous things but i put my finger in his face and yelled at him suddenly he stood up and he was a big guy i was like oh this was not a good idea thankfully security got him on the ground there was also a notorious 1997 episode called Clan Frontation, in which Springer moderated a conversation between members of the Ku Klux Klan and the Jewish Defense League, which devolved into a brawl. And then another memorable uh, uh, episode featured Lady Ice Queen and Princess, a mother-daughter dominatrix duo. Do I want to know what... That was about. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't watch very many of these. I was gonna go and um, uh, pull a bunch of clips that we could that we could punch in, but uh,
4: descriptions alone seem seem to they paint a picture. Uh, I didn't, I didn't feel like staring that far into the abyss. One KKK themed episode, presumably of many, <laughs> in 1994, gave the Jerry Springer Show its longtime head of security, Steve Wilkos. Chicago cop and former Marine. He later told Media Week, the pay was good and I figured it was just a one-time gig, but I ended up doing another show and another, and before I knew it, I was hired as the full-time director of security. So I left my career as a cop to give this a shot. And Wilcox would eventually sub in for Jerry while he was on Dancing with the Stars and even anchor his own eponymous show in 2007. Imagine how disappointed you would be if you made it all the way to get on Jerry Springer's show. And Jerry's not there, and you got Steve as the guy behind the mic. I w- I'd be bummed. Yeah,
5: yeah, I'd feel cheated. Um, but, you know, people just really wanted to be to be on. Uh, speaking of security, quite a number of now-prominent professional sports figures have uh, appeared on Springer's show as security. Hockey vets like Joe Corvo and Adam Burrish, uh, WEC welterweight champion Shoni Carter, and two separate UFC heavyweight champs, Andre Arlovsky and Boss Rutin. Uh, Boss Rutan is has a hilarious uh bar fighting tips instructional DVD where he talks in his like Dutch inflected English about like you always want to uh, if you're talking to someone you think you're going to get in a fight in you want to hold your hand up to your chin and sort of nod at them thoughtfully so then you can be in position to deliver headbutt out of nothing as he says he's like demonstrating like punching combos and he's like dang it dang it dang. I'm
4: sort really of surprised funny. if you have your hand up by your There's chin, you're already ready just to deliver a punch though. Well,
5: oh, he has another thing, he has another thing. There's a great setup where he's like, <laughs> Sir, you're telling me this about my wife. I'm sorry, but I'm gonna have to break your leg. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. I encourage everyone to look it up. It's called like boss rootons like street fighting or something. Uh in nineteen ninety-five, Springer spoke to Annabelle Chong. 22-year-old porn actress who took part in the world's biggest gangbang, recording 251 sex acts for a film and world record of the same name. And then this became a running bit on the show. They just kept having different porn actresses on there who were either going to or uh, uh, had just break this record. Um, Chong spoke of the experience as an empowering reversal of gender norms, uh, eventually just quipping to Jerry, why not? Because it was there. Uh, <laughs> now a programmer, though, Annabelle Chung's record was broken by Jasmine St. Clair, who also went on to Springer to discuss it. I believe her number was 300. Oh, my God. Now,
4: yeah. uh, honest- I'm
5: going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop you. It's it's not all different guys.
4: No, I know. Or I don't know. Yeah. But I assume. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it's multiple sex acts with a, a lower than number, lower than three hundred guys.
4: Okay. So, My question, I mean, how long did that take? Twenty four
5: hours. That's the conditions of the record.
4: Oh, I don't recall yeah. that being outlined
5: in. And, and you're in the mailers they sent you. <laughs> they didn't write that out for you. Um. Uh, in uh, more innocuous, there's the 1996 appearance of Zach, the 70-pound baby Strengert. He was diagnosed with something called Simpson-Galabi-Bemmel syndrome, which causes overgrowth. And his dad, who was on the show with him, talking about having to buy adult diapers for his son, said wouldn't change him for the world. And then uh, Strengert would return to the show as an adult, saying that he was happy and now working as a competitive gamer.
4: Was he still, like, huge you know i don't know oh wait i'm I'm looking at okay on ladbible.com, 70 pound baby reunited with jerry springer 20 years later let's take a look um okay he's a large man i i wouldn't i wouldn't have looking at him i wouldn't have guessed that he was 70 pounds as a baby but hmm. yeah probably evens out you know that would be my
5: that would be my bet uh less whimsically uh, the show explored the plight of Earl Zay in 1997 who cut off his own genitals with garden shears because he was being stalked by a man he knew. I, one step ahead of you, I found the AP article uh, from May 8th of 1997. He initially claimed that uh, someone else did it. Someone broke into his house and cut his dick off with garden shears. Uh, Don't you hate that? Well, he... he Oh, there's a truly spectacular quote in this AP article. Fulton District County Attorney Paulie Hoy said he would only be charged with falsely reporting an incident, adding, it's not against the law to remove your own penis. Springer quipped, wouldn't it have just been easier to change your phone number?
4: I mean, it's, it's stuff like this makes me think that Jerry Springer's show is scripted in the same way that, like, Hollywood Square is scripted. All, the, like, the quips and one-liners that the celebrities get are, like, written well in advance by writers, and they have on an index card. I don't know, it just feels very, like, I don't know.
5: Uh, their prep time for this was shockingly low. I mean, they they were getting, especially for getting 5,000 calls a week at their peak, uh, most from potential guests. Um, producer Richard Dominic had a, a production staff. Their job is to find the angriest callers, Uh, Each guest is briefed on what the topic is going to be, and then they're given a list of basically 10 to 20 possible outcomes of of what the situation could be. Like, we're going to put you in this situation with your horse, and here's what could maybe happen with your horse. I want you to be prepared for this. Um, But that didn't always pan
4: out. I mean, I read that viewers would call on this number at the end of the show and the producers would listen. And if the story sounded real or at least very juicy, they would fly these people out the same day to the studio and put them up at a fancy hotel. And they did it that quickly because they wanted to ensure that these people didn't have a chance to think things through or change their mind before <laughs> taping the episode the next day.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Um, <laughs> The year 1998. 1998- 98, 98. All of these section headers were formatted in the Jerry chant rhythm. The year 1998 is an important moment in Springer history. After initially being told by multimedia entertainment to tone down what was happening, the show was then bought by Universal, which pushed Springer, Dominic, and the staff to do what they wanted. And things really got crazy. There was the now-banned 1998 episode, I Married a Horse, in which Springer interviewed three people in what they called interspecies relationships including a Missouri man named Mark who claimed he'd been on a 40-year crusade to be accepted for his love of a pony named Pixel. The real kicker to this is that over the course of his interview, he reveals that he's slowly dying from hepatitis that he had contracted from the love that dares not speak its name.
4: <laughs> and this this episode... Oh, didn't we already do a bit on Nero... Oh, we sure. Oh, no, that's uh, Catherine the Great you're thinking of. Oh, and yes. Yeah. No, yes. Nero had a horse thing too, right? Oh, did he? He, he nominated his horse for a Roman council, I think.
5: But that was Platon. That was a mentorship situation. That wasn't uh-huh. sexual. Okay, well, He just wanted the horse to succeed. <laughs> really believed in that horse. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, that episode was banned in a bunch of markets. Uh, you could get it on the Jerry Springer Too Hot for TV compilation, which itself was a bestseller. Um. yeah you have a you have a favorite one here though who you add who you added yeah you had a lot I, I did a lot on this I, I did. one I'm yeah,
4: excited you, you talked to me about atypical sexual relationships and I got stuff to say what can I say Uh I, I, let's not forget about Erica Eiffel who is an American competitive archer who married the Eiffel Tower in a commitment ceremony in 2007 have you heard about that you, you heard about this I can't do a Jay, you Jay Leno like you you heard you about, this? Hear about this about this Have you, though? No. Uh No, I haven't. Uh, Eric Eiffel became the founder of OS International, an organization for those who develop significant relationships with inanimate objects. This was not the first time she developed a a non-platonic relationship with an inanimate object. She claimed that her relationship with her competition bow, whom she named Lance, helped her become a world-class archer. And she lost all of her sponsorships when she admitted this. She's quoted as saying, quote, I feel an innate connection to objects. It comes perfectly normal to us to connect on various levels, emotional, spiritual, and also physical for some. This inspired a 2008 documentary called Married to the Eiffel Tower. And in a 2015 interview with Vice, Erica Eiffel had this to say. Of
5: course it was was for Vice. I know, I know.
4: I understand that people are going to get visuals in their head, and they're going to have questions about sex. When you see a building and a person, you have questions, just like when you see a very tall person and a very short person together. You wonder how the the mechanics work, but you wouldn't go up to those people and ask, how do you do it when you're so tall and she's so short? The fact that people ask us, meaning me and the Eiffel Tower, those questions, (laughs) just just shows how little they respect us. And um, in one scene in this documentary, which is on YouTube and is fascinating erica is seen straddling one of the iron girders of the tower with a look of what has been described in print as euphoria on her face the scene then cuts to a shot of erica pulling her stocking back on insinuating that she has just consummated her relationship with the tower uh this did not sit well with french authorities who she claimed wanted nothing to do with me it was a classic case of star-crossed lovers and she felt torn away from her beloved Eiffel Tower. She said, I don't even know how to articulate a heartbreak like that. It just wrecked me. It was the final blow, and I just had to withdraw. So she retreated into the arms of another lover, although in this case the arms were bricks, and the lover was the Berlin Wall. I was going to say, who did she rebound with? She rebounded with the Berlin Wall. Her quote to Vice: the Berlin Wall picked me up off my feet. It was an object that was hated for being who he is. In the 1980s, I felt empathy for him. He can't help where he was built. They focused their hatred on the wall rather than the politics behind it. I felt like I was suffering in the same way. I went through a lot of rejection when I was younger because of my orientation. Uh, She enjoyed question mark does one enjoy i guess she seemed to enjoy a 20-year relationship with the berlin wall which inspired a musical theater production called erica's wall not the last time we'll talk about an unorthodox musical theater production in this episode she has also fallen in love with fighter jets um Hmm. elements of fencing I mean, you get the fighter jets thing. I mean, yeah, I guess. Um, And as of 2015, she was in a relationship with a crane, the crane that she uses to do her job in construction.
5: There's, come on. There's, there's HR. There's HR regulations about that. You got (laughs) to report that to superior. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, In what is a truly tremendous pool quote from the Vice story from 2015, Erica Eiffel says. People think I can just point at an object and decide to love it. They think I can't develop relationships with people, so I choose objects so I can have control. But I have no control over my relationship to the Eiffel Tower. If this was all about control, I'd love my toaster, you know? In 2010, a clinical sexologist named Dr. Amy Marsh wrote in the Electronic Journal of Human Sexuality that while it's often assumed that OS, or object sexuality, I think is what it's called, is a pathology or related to a history of sexual trauma, Dr. Marsh says there is, in fact, no data to support such a claim and that OS appears to be a genuine, though rare, sexual orientation. And per Vice, playwright Chloe Masheter interviewed eight objectum sexuals is how they identify themselves to write a play (laughs) called object love and she interviewed people who'd fallen in love with cars bridges and my personal favorite even the folding armrest of a desk chair she said there's an english woman who's in a relationship with the statue of liberty who also has a human boyfriend but he seems very supportive i don't recall if any of these people ever appeared on jerry springer but i would not be surprised I'm really shocked uh, that you'd never heard of this, of object sexuality. Yeah, no, it's it's the scale of it that really that really
5: gets to me. It's theosoph-
4: What's it? How could you do it? No, literally, how could you do it? The sheer mechanics yeah. of it are mind boggling. Well, just like what what do, like,
5: you know, obviously we've talked about uh, Queen drummer Roger Taylor wanting to f- his car. Yes, I'm yes, in love, love with my car. car. Yeah. yeah. So, but would the car be too small for? the Eiffel lover
4: Mm, good question good question uh (laughs)
5: is that then sizest of her if she's not attracted to cars but instead goes for trains would we call her a size queen (laughs) I just don't know is a train is
4: is, is a car a short king in this case possibly I god I what were we talking about again cherry springer (laughs)
5: Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Well, it was hard to argue with results. (laughs) So
1: what were the results?
5: (laughs) The results were that by 1998, about 6.7 million viewers were watching the Jerry Springer show every day, with the Washington Post dubbing Springer the king of the trash heap. By 1999, Springer had become the first daytime TV talk show to beat Oprah in the ratings in a decade. He toppled a decade-long run by Oprah. But despite that, advertisers were still wary of the show. This is a really interesting statistic. The New York Times reported that during the time that the Jerry Springer show was beating Oprah Winfrey in that number one spot, the cost of a 30-second advertisement during Springer was less than a third of the cost of a 30-second spot during Oprah. So that is just a bargain.
4: And Oprah admitted in a 1999 interview with the Sunday Times of London that what she was seeing from the, quote, vulgarity circus of Springer's show made her consider leaving her own program altogether that's power yeah to make Oprah question her life choices Jerry Springer responded in the New York Post <laughs> Oprah had the Sunday Times of London Jerry Springer had the New York Post saying that he loved Oprah Winfrey and that his mom didn't like his own show either and he didn't blame either one of them and as producer <clears throat> Richard Dominic said to ABC at one point if you're looking to save the whales call Oprah if you're sleeping with a whale call us there it is <coughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them.
5: The authorities quickly took notice of this, and Springer became a an easy explanation figurehead scapegoat for all of society's ills re-television. Bob Iger, then chairman of ABC, dubbed it an embarrassment to the television industry. And then U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman, alongside Education Secretary William Bennett, implored stations to stop airing the Jerry Springer show in a speech at the National Association of Broadcasters Convention in 1998. The brawls that the show frequently devolved into became a problem as well. Pressured by Chicago religious groups, uh, the chairman and chief executive of Springer's parent company told the L.A. Times in May of 1998, we are getting out of
4: the fighting business or the show will not be a boxing match. I also love the quote from another studio executive. We don't want to take away from the show. We just think that Jerry will be able to do it in a different way. It will still be confrontational. It will still be unpredictable. You will sense the conflict. You will still (laughs) see yelling and screaming. But we're not going to show anyone getting hit. Cue the boo and hissing.
5: Yeah, ratings plummeted and they reversed course in two months. By July of that year, the fights were back. And the show was back
4: in the number one slot. My favorite Chiron ever was "Violets are red, guests are black and blue." I mean, I have a, I have a, something to say on this. I mean, I agree. On. This is all deeply offensive and troubling and problematic and all those things. I think of Jerry Springer as a symptom and not a cause. You said earlier that it was used as a scapegoat for all of society's ills. Mm. You prefaced it by saying in terms of television, but I, I, I think it is more of a reflection. Of what people are, and I know yeah. that for, despite my being the optimist on this show, I think maybe this gives away my inherent view of humanity as you know. What, what is the is it, is it Hobbes? Who is it? Nasty and brutish?
5: Hobbes, uh, yeah. Uh, Thomas Hobbes said yeah. life is nasty, brutish, and short. Yes.
4: Um,
5: yeah. I mean, it's just a it's just a question of like, why is this the? I don't know. I it it. it I don't know why I'm offended by it. I guess it's just like... Oh, I am too, but I... I, I. Well, I guess just like it's, it's at this point, you know, having grown up with both this and the internet and, like, social media and, like, just a couple weeks ago, Elon Musk f***ed up Twitter to the point where you could see animal cruelty videos in your feed without any moderation and, like, you know, getting sent to, like... Like, it's all... A gestalt image of like the nightmare of American life, right? But why did this show have to put it into sixth gear? <laughs> you know, like why did we just have to? It was just like, it's not that, like, oh well, just hold up a mirror to societies, blah blah blah. It beat Oprah. It like they clawed, they, they, they truly, you know, they saw their opening and they went for it and capitalized on it, and they all got rich off of it. And like. I don't know, there's just such a gross, like, atavistic, it really is, like,
4: the worst. Yeah, it's one Uh, of the most American stories I think we've talked about on here. It's finding out what people, their base level desires, and giving it to them and making a ton of money off of it, regardless of any kind of accountability or responsibility or outcome. It's interesting. I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, in a way, it's strange that this is 25 years ago, because it does feel very current um yeah
5: well that's what i'm saying i mean you know. like you you know this this show is like undone by reality tv and social media and youtube and every, yeah. and you know 4chan and like everything like you didn't need
4: springer all of a sudden but like same stuff that brought down jackass in a lot of ways too i was like suddenly it, yeah. you, you have stupid stuff you can watch on youtube whenever you want
5: yeah but i mean it just it it again i don't know why it like if like on the you know there we were on the road to hell and they put a brick on the gas pedal, <laughs> you know like there's your pull quote. And I think it's important to kind of not to join the pro-clutching brigade because you know again all these Republicans are I well, Jim Lieberman was a Democrat, yeah. right? All these but all these people were like you know oh, it's a, we should step in and well, it's a horrible thing to have on television. It's like well, let the free market decide. You know the free market did decide, but um yeah, man, it's just, it's just horrifying. <laughs> and it, and it is like, so much of it is just a, a, a hideous precursor to like the way, I mean, like what is Twitter if not a Jerry Springer brawl? Only less moderated, <laughs> you know? Oy, I don't even, it's, I can't articulate on it. I'm just so, it's just so, it's like worrying a tooth. Um, and I don't get puritanical about this kind of shit. Like, I don't care about Eminem. I didn't, you know, Marilyn Manson is a sex predator, but I didn't like care about his music. I just like, I think it's the, it's the two, it's the two-facedness of it that bothers me. It's like, it's just him like putting up his hands and being like, I'm just a guy with a show. And, and we all, we're all the same underneath. And I'm like, no, you're worth 60 million bucks. Like you didn't have, you never had a real job. You went into politics. (laughs) You've never had a real job. Like you contributed nothing to the world. like, since at least the early 70s. Like, get off your f***ing high horse. That's what, it's the, it's the hip hop, at least this guy, Richard Dominic was like, yeah, I'd kill someone on TV. Like, that's the kind of clarity that you want from a, a the, the, the moral purity you want from someone in television. In 1999, Chicago City Council even convened a hearing about Springer's show, suggesting that guests could be arrested for the acts of violence they committed on air. Alderman Ed Burke expressed concern that the off-duty Chicago police officers serving as security guards for the program failed to pursue actual legal ramification for the brawls. There were allegedly, though, standards in place. Audiences were not allowed to yell anything that might encourage more violence. Male-on-female violence wasn't allowed, and Springer claimed to have always offered women the opportunity to press charges.
4: One editorial in the New York Times in April 1998 claimed that on average, each episode of The Jerry Springer Show had about 85 to 130 bleeps and between 5 and 12 fights. With numbers like that, it's no surprise that Jerry Springer was constantly being asked if the fights were in fact real or if it was staged like wrestling. A BBC report from 1998 concluded that 16 former guests on the show say they were coached on who to hit during their appearance. And the same report quoted various publications as featuring the detail that the show had, quote, a fight quota for each program. One former guest on The Jerry Springer Show told—supposedly told Extra, We acted everything. When you have to do this, when you have to punch, when you have to push, they wanted us to wrestle and throw each other around. They said, We want four fights— In 1998, Rolling Stone captured a pre-filming moment backstage between producer Melinda Chait and a guest who had just told her, I will take my damn shoe off and put my sock in her mouth. To which Chait responded, If that's what you're going to do, do it fast, because security will try and stop you. So, you know, the point is moving objects. Moving objects are what get the attention of the audience. Get up out of your chair, move around. I'm not telling you to slug anybody. You know that for a fact. I don't tell you to slug anybody.
5: (laughs) I just love that this guy was like, I will put my sock in her mouth.
4: <laughs> I to, for, for somebody who seems to be in the heat of the moment, it's a very specific thing they want to do.
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. true. Uh, this unnamed man then, for some reason, in this Rolling Stone profile, he brings up a woman that he knew who committed suicide and Chate interrupts him and says, nope, you're not going to talk about suicide. I don't like suicides on my show. We're not going to talk about that, period. If you bring that up, I'll stop the taping. I'm not kidding. So, lines drawn. As for whether or not guests made up or otherwise faked their stories, that was a persistent rumor that dogged the show for its entire history. There was a vice contributor uh, in 2015 named Harmon Leon who tried to test the show's vetting process by claiming that he had a meth-addicted boyfriend who was having too much anonymous sex on Grindr and reporting back that when he called into the show about this, a producer asked him to spice up the story by recruiting someone to lie and pose as one of these anonymous lovers. And then on the phone... The producer just started chanting, "Jerry, Jerry, Jerry," which I mean, yeah. is exact exactly how I thought that would go.
4: I mean, here is a, do they get paid? People on the show, or yeah. the producers? No, the people on the show. Ah, uh, because that adds a whole other no, sad it's just element. The, no, it's of just this. the
5: it's just the travel. It's just the travel.
4: Okay, all right. I was gonna say if if they actually paid these people, then that adds a whole other sad level of people being desperate and saying and doing whatever to get. But okay.
5: Yeah, well, uh, there was one famous case of Springer being fooled, though. There was a couple of Canadian stand-up comics. Ian Sirota is one of them who's given an interview about it. And he and his three buddies responded to a request from the show seeking someone who had slept with their babysitter. Canadian viewers recognized them. The whole thing was outed as a hoax. And then Springer sued them each for fifty grand to cover production costs and presumably make an example out of them. Uh, this was settled out of court for ten dollars, which they mailed to the show in change.
4: <laughs> well, ratings or not, Barry Diller, who at the time was the chief of Studios USA, the company behind Jerry Springer Show, kept needling Jerry about the controversies, and so word began to spread that Springer might be looking to exit his deal by the time his contract was up in the year two thousand. But he re-upped with them for oh my god, thirty million dollars. Thirty million dollars. And the hits just kept on coming. There was a food fetishist named Spam Man. There was a week on.
5: Springer- Did you watch that clip? No. Do you wanna, It's bad. Wanna, you want to talk about it? No. Okay. Just don't. Just don't do it. Just it's 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 people in a children's uh, pool filled with food, and the food is on them, and it's. I don't know. Hunger is a real problem in this country.
4: Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, there was a week of Springer Break where shows were taped at Jamaica's Hedonism Club. And there was also a segment called Three Pigs in a Trailer, which featured three obese shirtless men gorging themselves on junk food in, as you may have guessed, a trailer. By 2002, TV Guys editors put the Jerry Springer show atop their list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. I wonder what number two was. I believe they also started using their, uh, their, their, their that in their intros. I don't know. Check that out. Check that list out. See what else we got. All right. TV guys, 50 worst shows of all time. Number one, Jerry Springer. Number two, my mother, the car. That makes a certain amount of sense. That's the, yeah, as a mid 60s show, uh, the premise features a man whose deceased mother is reincarnated as an antique car who communicates with him through the car radio.
5: Weird. Gross. James L. Brooks
4: wrote it. I think I did know that. What's number three? Um, XFL, yeah, that was just more like people just didn't like it. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. No, I want number five Hogan's Heroes. People love Hogan's Heroes, it's no worse than like Gilligan's Island. Uh, well,
5: Hogan's
4: Heroes made a not made a Nazi a lovable goon. Uh, yeah, good, good point.
5: (laughs) Anything else? Any other interesting takeaways from that?
4: Uh, the Chevy Chase show. Baywatch, number 21. Who wants to marry a multimillionaire? Was that the fake one? Or that was Joe Millionaire? Yeah, it was Joe Millionaire. Uh, homeboys in Outer
5: Space. I am not familiar. All right, we're we're ending this. And now on to a lighter part of the program. Death. Uh, no, this is sad. Um, aside from all the tut-tutting and garden variety industry mudslinging, there were actual landmark cases of serial crimes committed in the daytime TV talk show sphere that had ramifications for the entire industry uh, the first one is actually not from Springer it's from an episode of the Jenny Jones show years prior on March 6th, 1995, Jenny Jones taped an episode called Revealing Same Secret, Same Sex Secret Crush whatever on which Scott Amandure a gay man confessed to an associate Jonathan Schmitz that he had a crush on him Schmitz laughed about this situation during the taping but three days later he shot and killed Amandure He's confessed to the killing and was found guilty of second-degree murder. And in 1999, the Amanduri family sued the Jenny Jones show, the production company, and Warner Brothers for the show's tactics. A jury awarded them $29.3 million in a settlement. Remember
4: that. Jordan. Jerry found himself in similar waters in the year 2000 when a married couple, Ralph and Eleanor Panitz, appeared on an episode of a show called Secret Mistresses Confronted with Mr. Panitz's ex-wife, Nancy Campbell-Panitz, in which they complained about Mrs. Campbell-Panitz's behavior and accused her of stalking them. Hours after the show was broadcast, Nancy was found dead in a home that the three were fighting over, and Florida police soon confirmed that they were treating the death as a homicide. In August 2000, Jerry Springer appeared on CNN's Larry King Live to discuss the incident, claiming that it, quote, had nothing to do with my show, and eventually, in May 2002, Panitz was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. Shortly after, Nancy's family filed lawsuit against the Jerry Springer show, which was dropped at the top of 2003 because... of Why few- was that? A few months prior, a Michigan appeals court threw out the jury awarded 29.3 million in the Jenny Jones case, saying the program had no legal duty to protect the guest who had appeared on the show.
5: That's ghastly because there's no way that that, that unless that dude confessed to his coworker, he wouldn't have gotten murdered. <laughs> and there's he might not have done it had he not been on the show. You know? Like I what a oh god.
4: What do you think about this? You're a lawyer. It's pretty horrendous, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't okay. want to come, I'm worried that I come across on this episode as as the good cop uh, in terms of <laughs> Jerry Springer. I'm not defending any of this. I mean, it, it, it's it's a funny role reversal for the two of us. I actually have a lower opinion of humanity than I think you do, and you get all up in arms about it. And I'm just like, yeah, what do you expect? People. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's... yeah, which is, which yeah. is
5: unusual. This wouldn't be the only suit that Springer was brought against him over the show. In 2019, Springer was sued by the family of Blake Alvey, who'd appeared in a May 2018 episode in which his fiancée told him she had been unfaithful, that she was leaving him, and that she had sold the engagement ring he had given her. Then a few weeks later in June, Alvey shot himself. I wasn't able to find out how this case ended. I don't know if it's ongoing, but uh, yeah. That seems like something that he was responsible for pretty directly
4: yeah
5: uh in (laughs) 99 of this thousand yard stare you're just like yeah uh in 1999 a 15 year old boy in hollywood florida was along with his brother convicted of sexually abusing their eight-year-old half-sister allegedly telling police he watched a springer episode about incest this presumably was a 1998 segment called i'm pregnant by my brother focusing on a 17 year old named heather who said she was pregnant by her 16 year old younger brother and also in love with her elder
4: brother I forgot how I forgot how truly grotesque this show was. I take back a lot of the things I said earlier.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting to see how you'd respond once we got into the murder and sexual abuse portion. Um, That wasn't even the only underage sex case spun from the show. 24 year old wife and mother, Dawn Marie Eves of Geneva, New York, appeared on the show in 1998 to confess that she had an affair with a 16 year old boy for which she was charged and arrested.
4: Do we think that the show was more less or equal in harm to Jackass <laughs> in terms of Ooh. the in terms of just like the destruction that it left in its audience? Oh man. I
5: don't know. That's 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 a tough one. I think in psychic damage Jerry, Jerry. did more, mm. but but man. Wow. Good good question. Good thought experiment. Mm. Well, with his show at the top of the televised heap, Springer was attaining a new level of celebrity himself. In 1997, he began a temporary job on Chicago's WMAQ as a news commentator, and the anchor Carol Marin, who had worked at the station for 19 years, refused to share airtime with Springer and quit the show, of which he quipped, I am sorry she found it necessary this week to use me as the stepping stone to martyrdom. In solidarity with Marin's decision, co-anchor Ron Magers departed a few weeks later. Dozens of people from religious and women's organizations protested the station's nighttime edition as well. And the heat ended up being too much for the station, and they dropped the Jerry Springer show entirely in May of 1998, and then a Fox affiliate uh, picked it up, and it was so expensive for them that to cover the cost of, of acquiring it, they had to broadcast it not once but twice a day.
4: And Jerry himself started popping up in TV cameos in 1996 on shows as wide-ranging as Roseanne and The X-Files. He notched The Simpsons' appearance and similarly picked up roles on The Wayman's Brothers, Space Goes Coast to Coast, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and, of course, he played himself in Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me in 1999 when Dr. Evil and his estranged son Scott appear on Springer's show. My dad is evil and wants to take over the world, I believe was the Chiron.
5: Yeah, that was a good bit. That was I a remembered
4: great that. bit. Yeah. In 1998, Springer reached
5: probably the height of his own ego, at least, when he partnered with producer Gary W. Goldstein for Ringmaster, a barely-veiled starring vehicle in which Springer plays Jerry Farrelly because he did not have the rights to his own name. Uh, Goldstein had actually been a fairly big-name producer at the time. He was attached to 1990's Pretty Woman and 1992's Under Siege. Uh, this movie was written by a guy named John Bernstein, who has literally only other two writing credits on IMDb. It was directed by Neil Abramson, who did some music videos before this and doesn't seem to have done much else. And none of this is a surprise, as the film was critically savaged and didn't even make back half of its budget. But it did co-star Jamie
4: Presley in an early role. And it won Jerry Springer a Razzie for Worst News Star. I bet you he went to pick it up. What do you think? probably uh 1998 was a bad year for jerry
5: personally as well i let me tell you that i I went down a bizarre rabbit hole researching this uh the world of porn journalism uh i found a i found a, a, a a a guy purporting to be one of the more famous porn journalists who interviewed this porn star kendra jade and her stepmom kelly uh well she interviewed kelly kelly jade uh These two women, along with another porn producer and uh, the UK tabloid News of the World, conspired to tape Springer uh, in a hotel room with Jade uh, using a hidden camera in the closet. Uh, They had appeared on the show before. I think it was their this tryst was around the third time that they were going to be on the show before. In this interview, I found Kelly says that on the previous appearance on the show, Kelly's actual mom knocked one of her teeth out. Uh, and this was actually a big scandal that was kind of scrubbed because it was largely the province of the tabloids at the time, like the New York Daily News reported on it. Springer threatened to sue them. Um, he retained uh, Marty Singer, who's one of the top L.A. like uh, muckraking lawyers to deal with it. And he ultimately settled with uh, this woman and her co-conspirators for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Um which she would then, in this interview, allege that, the, actually in a few interviews, alleged that this guy who helped her set it up stole from her. So she didn't even get anything from it. Um, it was, he was supposed to be, they, they supposedly said that they caught him having sex. Her stepmom said in this interview that that didn't happen. She only gave him a blowjob. So there's that. Springer uh, blamed the situation on the Viagra that he had been taking, saying it turned him into a sex addict And ironically, he had been taking it to help patch up his relationship with his wife, Uh, which,
4: well, draw your own conclusions. Pressure on Springer continued to mount. And on 2001, efforts by groups like the Parents Television Council and the American Family Association forced some advertisers to decrease or stop their sponsorship altogether of his show. While in my beloved UK, the Independent Television Commission banned Jerry Springer and other tabloid talk shows from being broadcast during daytime hours on school holidays in response to numerous parental complaints. One bright spot was that in 2003, Jerry Springer, the opera, hit the stage across the pond. Set in hell and containing extensive profanity, along with, at one point, a troupe of tap-dancing Ku Klux Klan members, it ran for 609 performances in London from April 2003 to February 2005, before touring the UK in 2006 and going on to win four Laurence Olivier Awards, including Best New Musical. The opera, which included an estimated 8,000 obscenities, made its North American debut at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, while its New York City debut at Carnegie Hall, (laughs) Harvey Keitel starred as Jerry (laughs) at Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. Jerry himself made it to the West End in 2009, singing and acting in the Cambridge Theater production of the musical Chicago in the Billy Flynn role played by Richard Gere in the movie adaptation. I actually saw that. <laughs> I was studying abroad at the time. Yes, in a screenwriting program. And we went. How to did see you that.
3: make me get? How did you make me get like 11
5: pages into this? I before sort of you forgot. that You
4: saw him live on stage singing uh, tap dance. I kind of forgot about it till right now. I sort of blocked it out. No wonder I felt compelled to, like, take the good cop role. Yeah, you were like, well, you know, he has a lovely voice. The opera was, I don't understand how this is possible. The opera was broadcast on BBC Two in January 2005 and sort of predictably garnered 55,000 complaints and a number of protests at various BBC offices. How could they broadcast a show that had literally 8,000 obscenities in it? I know it's England and like their obscenity <laughs> laws are a little different, but Jesus. Springer himself, incidentally, saw the production in Edinburgh in 2002 and dubbed it, quote, wonderful, telling The Guardian that he, quote, didn't object to anything in it and only wished he'd thought of it first. That really tells you all you need to know about Jerry yeah. Springer. Take us well, home, the- Heigl.
5: Yeah. <laughs> and ding, and ding. <laughs> The glory days of Jerry Springer Show uh, were coming to a close. The internet continued its expansion, and reality TV became the dominant format for on-screen garbage delivery to idiots. <coughs> Sorry, I watch Pump Rules. I don't really have a leg like, yeah. stand on here. Why? It's the only. It's the only one that got its hooks in me. Really? Yeah. Well, I, don't I don't know. Low was you watching. Low was watching a bunch of it during the early stages of the pandemic, and I just gradually, like a, uh, you know, your first, your first taste is free. And um, then I just gradually started coming back. I mean, explain to I'm me. I'm not proud of it. No, well, no. I'm, no,
4: I'm, I'm curious because uh, you're somebody whose it's, taste is. They're
5: just. Yeah, they're just. Tra- I, I don't. It's the. It's the only one I've. I've found that I can uh, stomach just because they're so transcendently awful. It's. It's cut all that. <laughs> uh, the show celebrated is. <laughs> 3,000th episode in 2006, a year that they apparently also debuted a character named the Reverend Schnorr.
4: No idea what uh, you're talking
5: about. I didn't either. I just found it, and I had to put it in here. Uh, this was a drunken womanizer character who was created by the show's promotions director, Brian Schnorr. Uh, and this guy had, may come as no surprise to you, studied improv at Chicago's second Second City. In um, 2007, Reverend Schnorr merchandise was outselling the show's popular "Security" Jerry Springer Show security T-shirts on its website. <laughs> Just yeah, I mean yeah. the mythology behind this show, the the, the lore deepens. Yes, yes. Also, in 2007, the real the real crippling blow is that security director Will Coast left Jerry Springer to host his own syndicated talk show, also shot at the NBC Tower in Chicago and produced by Richard Dominic. Dominic however would ultimately resign not long after the show's the main show's 18th season began. He launched the reality series Hardcore Pawn about a pawn shop on Detroit's semi-famed 8-mile road in 2010. I found a muckraking columnist named Roger Robert Fader from the Chicago Sun-Times who was reporting on Chicago TV Scuttlebutt that Dominic was fired because he gotten in a physical confrontation with a guest and choked this person how much more of an appropriate departure from the show that you helped create could you get?
4: In addition to his departure, another crucial inflection point for the Jerry Springer show came in 2009 when the taping, when the show recorded its last episode at WMAQ-TV's NBC Tower in Chicago, where it had been taped since 1992. NBC had received tax credits to move the production to Stamford, Connecticut, most famous to me for being the place that Jim relocates in the office, along with Mari Povich, and Springer's head of security, Steve Wilkos' new show, plus NBC Sports. Residents of this Connecticut town protested Jerry's arrival, as one might expect. Uh, Sadly, this relocation did not forestall the show's eventual death about a decade or so later. Trades reported that production of the Jerry Springer show ceased in 2018 after ratings had dropped to about 1.7 million viewers per episode, which is down from, what, I believe something like 7 million an episode? It's crazy they they contextualized that the report that I read where they um that was
5: what that's what Rachel Ray was getting at the time though. So it's like it was just how how far he had fallen mm. and that they couldn't justify paying him that much anymore. Um but it's not like Stanford has a leg to stand on. They're the home of the WWE. Right. That's right. Like they were just like, "Oh, that's the line we draw. You know, we're fine with the steroid uh abusing, you know, Nightmare Corporation. Uh we just don't like We're fine with Vince McMahon. Drawing the line between Vince McMahon at Vince McMahon, but not Jerry Springer is hilarious hypocrisy. Shame on you, Stanford.
4: And the final first-run episode of the Jerry Springer show aired on July 26, 2018. Though Springer's spinoff show, Judge Jerry... As well as security head Steve Wilco's spinoff, both continued on afterwards. I feel like maybe I just missed it. Not a big enough deal was made that the Jerry Springer Show was ending. I bet you it was just a lot of like good riddance pieces.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had started a podcast since twenty fifteen that ended last year. But he was like a he was big podcast at the time. I mean, he was he he was diverse guy. Uh, He hosted America's Got Talent for two seasons. He competed on Dancing with the Stars so that he could learn how to dance for his daughter's wedding. Um, In his last interview ever, he said his happiest moment on television was when she attended a taping of Dancing with the Stars. So that's kind of nice. And he cut a country record called Dr. Talk. He was a big Merle Haggard fan, apparently. Uh, Springer also hosted a liberal-leaning radio talk show and mulled a 2004 run for the Ohio Senate. It's actually kind of sad in that American light, this American life podcast episode about him. They did a lot of interviews with him about the time. And um, essentially what it was, Mike Ford who worked on this campaign with him told this American life that it wasn't so much Jerry himself that all the people that they polled had a problem with. They just said that uh, it was the show. Like they all liked him in his positions, but they were just like, he has to quit the show. The show has to stop. And he couldn't get out of his contract in time to mount a campaign. So he dropped out of the race in 2003 after spending like a year canvassing and doing all the pressing the flesh and all that. And he got like CBS news in their report. They talked about him like actually choking up when he's saying like, essentially I can't get out of my show in time to do this. So clearly that aided him, which I
4: say good. Springer's defense of his show ranged from the pretty bog standard. It's just silly minded entertainment to the somewhat more serious arguments that he was exposing mainstream America to representations of itself not often seen on the screen. At the end of the day, it just seemed like Jerry liked easy money. He was worth about $60 million by the time of his death. In fact, This American Life's Alex Blumberg pressed Jerry once before a taping, saying, Here's a person who's, at every stage of their professional career, been imbued with a sense of trying to make a difference. And then you get to the Cherry Springer show. And Springer answered, Well, we certainly made a difference in television. I'm not sure people are happy about it. I try not to think about it too much. Life is what it is. But I just don't spend too much time worrying about that. I do my show. I've always said it's a stupid show. I've had a wonderful life because of it and all that. But I've never for a second thought that it's important. It's trivial. It's chewing gum. And I recognize that. Once you do something that's significant in life, all this other stuff is just a way to eat. And he also told the BBC at one point that he didn't actually watch his show, which I think is very telling.
5: Yeah, just kept cashing the checks. Uh, as he grew older, though, he seemed to reflect more on the role that he'd played in shaping American culture. He gave a widely publicized quote to a podcast in 2022 that had him half joking, I've ruined the culture. As And as an avowed liberal, he seemed to detest Donald Trump uh, endorsed Hillary in 2016 and took a lot of pot shots at Trump, um, was open about the fact that the two essentially emerged from the same section of the pop culture swamp. Um, This is interesting, though, because that remorse seems a little bit at odds with a detail from the Rolling Stone profile I mentioned earlier from 1998, in which Springer ended a pre-taping meeting with production staff by proclaiming, this show is good for America. Another revealing anecdote from that profile comes from WMAQ anchorman Ron Magers, who is one of the ones who quit in protest when his station brought back Springer on the, on the news following the, the, uh, his talk show. Uh, this guy told Rolling Stone, Jerry had been taping the show for only a couple of months. I passed him in the hall and we shook hands. He leaned forward as if he was sharing a great secret and he whispered, I know I'm going to hell for this. I was quite taken aback. Apparently, Jerry wasn't proud of what he was doing. Maybe he is now. I don't know. At the start of Jerry's 25th season, he shared a message that I would like to highlight. His takeaway from years of doing the show was that deep down, we are all alike. We all want to be happy. We cry when we're hurt. We're angry when we've been mistreated. And to be liked, accepted, and respected, not to mention loved, is the greatest gift of all. And then he emphasized that he never thought he was better than any of the people on his show. And he started to choke up when he added, only luckier. Or with fewer scruples. And a lot fewer horses. <laughs> Folks, this has been Too Much Information.
4: I'm Alex Heigel. And I'm Jordan Rontog. Take care of yourselves <laughs> and each other.
5: Boo! <laughs> Jerry, Jerry. <laughs>
4: information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigel. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.